Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Oral Presentations, episode 31. Vampires for Chip. Catch your candelabras out. We're doing fucking vampires. This, uh, this is going to be about vampires, and it is for my old boss, Chip. Uh, a couple years ago, I mean, we are just talking, it was like, maybe, I don't know, probably like two years ago? More, we're just, I was just working, talking about like, a, you know, podcast, what would you want to listen to? And I got more... I don't know if you ever if you ever get surprised with like the amount of honesty you get in an answer when you didn't expect it. I was just like bullshitting around, just like yeah, if you're gonna like listen to a podcast or whatever, like if I ever did one, like what what would you want it to like be on? And dude, he, I was surprised. He was like, uh, uh, he took a beat and then he just really sincerely was like vampires. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know how to react. I was like, what? Yeah, like, yeah, I like vampires, werewolves too, but vampires. So it's been it's been kicking around in my head, and uh, we didn't really have a plan to uh, like really make a podcast back then. But I remembered it, and so when I started this, I was like, "If it keeps going, I I, I want to do vampires for Chip, dude." So we're gonna we're gonna look into vamps, and uh, but also when he said vampires, I remember when he said that I did get kind of like fuck because like vampires is a really well known topic, and so like to try to make it. I don't know, good in a way that, yeah, it's it's a little bit hard. It's kind of like D.B. Cooper where there's a lot of stuff out there, you know, and it's also, you know, it was also intimidating because it haunts us and tantalizes us, shrouded in the superstition of ages past, Chip. Anyway, so, like, it does that too, and uh, look, before I started looking at this, I felt like how I felt before the Genies episode where I was like, because I did one on genies, and before I started that one, I was really excited to look into them. And then I'm not gonna say I was let down, but it was like it just wasn't wasn't what I was hoping for. It turned out if you didn't don't if you didn't hear, it, don't feel bad. It, t- it turns out like genies are just kind of like uh, they're like ancient Muslim ghosts that might be demons. But it's like, and that's not bad. But it just wasn't what I was. I was looking for like blue skin or whatever. But uh, so going into this, I wanted to kind of temper my expectations for what vampires are. And just let them be what they are, you know? So I'm, I'm pretty happy with uh, what I ended up with. So what we're going to be covering in this one, we're going to take a look at the current sexy, mysterious vampires and see when somebody decided to make them like that. Uh, and also, uh, like, what is that? what was that type of vampire even based on? What the fuck? Uh, and then we're going to take a, we're going to go take a look back at the 1700s when... Actual people in Eastern Europe were like, yo, there are fucking vampires everywhere. We got to do something about this. And that's like where European vampire lore started. Uh, and then we'll finish it up with uh, with an exotic one. If you heard that, Six is getting murdered in the other room playing video games, which is pretty funny. All right. Vampires for Chip. Let's get it going. All right. Current sexy vampire who's a millionaire. I don't. I don't really watch any of this shit, but I know. I mean, you see it. It's like every vampire. It's, unless they're like the root, like the Blade Three vampires that are kind of like drug addict vampires, wear hoods and stuff. They're all like hot and rich. So that got started in 1897. We're looking at the book Bram Stoker's Dracula. Now, Bram Stoker is an Irish author, or was an Irish author, and uh, Dracula is categorized as a piece of gothic fiction. Now, I'm just going to say that not to find it. I have fucking, I had no idea what that meant. So, gothic fiction means it's a subgenre of 
gothic horror, which combines fiction, horror, death, and sometimes romance, Chip. So that's the type of book that Bram Stoker was looking to write. But Bram Stoker didn't, he, he didn't, he didn't go to Transylvania. So how this book actually came about. All right, so there was actual belief in real vampires, but it was trailing off by 1897. People weren't really into it anymore, but it was like still in people's minds of like, oh, remember that thing? That shit was crazy. So the subject matter was there for Bram Stoker to write, write a novel about it. So what he did, he smashed together this one book called The Land Beyond the Forest by Emily Gerard, which is like a, that was like a travel guide back in the day for Transylvania. It was like a strange, like, you ever see those like strange NJ books or strange whatever state you're in books that has like facts and shit? Land Beyond the Forest was an old school version of that about Transylvania. And then he also smashed together uh, like Transylvanian werewolf mythology. And by putting those two together, he created the lore around Dracula. Also, the werewolf mythology that he used, that's where the idea of vampires being able to turn into, like, bats or wolves or a puff of smoke, that shit all came from Bram Stoker, and that came from him looking into werewolf mythology. That's where vampires currently can, like, turn into bats and smoke and stuff. That's where that came from. All right, so he had those two pieces. I got the Transylvania knowledge, and then I got some werewolf shit, but he needed a main character. And this is where the idea for Dracula came from was a dude named Vlad Tepes, or who's also known as Vlad III, or best known as Vlad the Impaler. All right, now this was the dude that Bram Stoker was like, fuck yeah, going to be my main character. Here comes Dracula, dude. All right, so Vlad Tepes was born in 13, or I'm sorry, 1431 in Transylvania. And this dude in real life had nothing to do with vampires. There's, there's nothing, he's not, he was actually kind of like a Romanian... Transylvanian, like, George Washington figure, which I thought was interesting finding this out, because there's still people in Transylvania or, like, Romanian region who are kind of, like, that's not who that's not who Vlad the Impaler was, man. He wasn't fucking Dracula. Like, they're still kind of bent out of shape about it, because he's, like, one of their George Washington-type dudes. Anyway, but Bram Stoker needed a main character, and Vlad Tepe's story fit, so fuck it. That's, that's who became Dracula. So let's take a look at Vlad the Impaler's actual story, though, to see why it appealed to Bram Stoker. All right, Vlad Tepes, Transylvania George Washington, what did he do? All right, first off, Vlad Tepes was the son of the guy who owned a place called Wallachia in 1436. All right, Vlad and his brother were then held hostage by the Ottoman Empire for like five years because the Ottoman Empire needed to secure their dad who owned Wallachia's loyalty. So Vlad was like a hostage with, the, with his brother for like five years. Eventually, in 1456, Vlad and his bro invade their homeland of Wallachia to try to get it back for them, and they had Hungarian support. Also, this takes place all in, like, Eastern Europe, Transylvania country. My people. <laughs> A little bit south of my people. Lithuania is, like, north of Europe, but, like, Eastern Europe still counts. Um, anyway, so they invade their homeland of Wallachia with Hungarian support. Vlad's brother dies, but the plan works. All right. Then Vlad's in power in Wallachia, hanging out, and then he's like, fuck all this, I'm going to purge the aristocracy. So then Vlad gets, well, they were known as the boyars, uh, or like the upper class, the people who, with political power who could challenge his rule and create instability in his kingdom. He just started killing all them. He, uh, there's one account where he invited a lot of them to a dinner in like a barn, 
And then they ate great food and stuff. And then after the dinner, Vlad was like, I got to go to the bathroom. And he went out back and he just locked the place and burned the whole fucking thing down. So, I mean, that was, I mean, look, it's a, it's a, it's a tactic to consolidate power, but it's certainly rude. And then after he burned down that house, all those guys in it, um, then he started plundering Saxon villages, which were by the kingdom of Wallachia. So he was going around robbing people near him to be able to, again, consolidate power, get some money going, stuff like that. And this is when uh, he started getting the nickname the Impaler because as he was plundering these Saxon villages, he started putting people on sticks. It's just, he, he liked doing it. Um, again, it was like a political and military fear tactic because the idea of like nobody really wants to fuck with the crazy guy. That's what they say looking back where it's like, oh, it actually was a smart move because then other military powers were intimidated because like Vlad put like 20,000 people on sticks. Like, he put a shitload of people on six. <laughs> and uh, I told my mom about this, and, and uh, she was like, how did he get him up there? I don't know. I was like, I don't know. They must have had a lot of ladders in Wallachia. You know what I'm saying, Mom? And she didn't laugh, and uh, I don't think anybody who just heard me say that did either, so that's all right. But anyway, so Vlad put 20,000 dudes on sticks. After that, uh, he's kind of holding down Wallachia, and then that's when the Ottoman Sultan who's next door, was like, yo, I'm going to need some homage. You got to give me some fucking money or something. I know you live over there. I'm going to send two dudes. They got to collect that money from you. And then those two Ottoman dudes show up to Vlad's house, and they're like, yo, what's up? I'm here to collect that money. And Vlad's like, great, give me just a second. Put some on sticks. Just put some. Put some. A guy liked putting people on fucking sticks, dude. No homage for you, dude. No allowance. Fuck off. You're on sticks. Anyway, so then uh, Vlad the Impaler is killed in battle in 1477, uh, and he was fighting in Bosnia against the Ottomans, and that's the end of his life. So Bram Stoker found all this out and was like, awesome, I'm going to use this dude as my main character, take some of the elements of his life story, smash it together with that Transylvania Strange New Jersey book plus werewolf knowledge, that's how we're going to get Dracula, I can't wait to sell this book, I bet it's going to work. So what Bram Stoker takes from Vlad Tepes slash Vlad the Impaler's life, is now vampires are, like, regal, man. They're the aristocrats, they're rich, that's where you get castles from, that's where you get their smooth, they're courageous, and it fits in with gothic literature, because gothic literature tantalizes readers with emotionally charged action in supernatural exotic settings where sexuality could only be suggested indirectly with a bite on the neck. With the bites on the neck being a metaphor for the sexual act, Chip. So that's where uh, that's where like Vlad the Impaler comes from. Uh, that's where the the main character Dracula comes from. But here's the thing: that's not how vampires got going. You know, that's the that's the vampires we know now. To figure out how vamps got going in Europe, we got to take a look at Slavic folklore from the 1600s. You know, to see if these sensual immortal monsters are uh, rooted in a grim reality. So we're taking a look at, again, Eastern Europe here. We're looking at Hungary, Poland, Transylvania, some place called Morovia. I'm not just going to say that like I know where the hell that is, but I'm guessing it's somewhere around Hungary. And I know Poland out of that list. So why did vampires show up in Eastern Europe? All right, so some people say that vampires showed up in Eastern Europe because the vampire myths were migrating over from India. They were going left, and then Western Europe Christianity was going right. And then where those two ideas and that culture clash happened was Eastern Europe. So again, in the in Hungary, Poland, Transylvania, Eastern Europe, yeah, the clash of cultures, vampire myths, and then people 
from Western Europe who are Christians being like, what the fuck is all this? And then they tried to find a solution. And Eastern European uh, people, uh, close to Lithuanians, they are very superstitious and easily fooled by magic. Uh, and they had a bunch of names for vampires. They were uh, Upiers, Nosferatu was a type of vampire, and apparently that type was susceptible to gunfire. Aswan and Stragoi. So we're looking at like 16, 1700s here. For example, in 1732 in Serbia, over a period of three months, it was documented that 17 people died of vampire attacks. It's a lot of people. And it was documented too. 17 people died of vampire attacks. Also in like Prussia, 1591, there was a shoemaker who killed himself. And then everybody in the town was like, that shoemaker is coming and fucking choking me in the middle of the night. And then so people went out and dug his grave up and cut his head off. We'll get, we'll get to how they dealt with it in a second. But So these are the, the stories that were going around. People dying. Nobody knows what the fuck's going on. So in Slavic folklore, the vampire is a person who died a weird death or an alcoholic. Uh, 28 days later, zombie bite rules apply where it's like, all right, well, if the vampire bites you, then you got vampirism. That, that is from... Back in the Slavic folklore days, and that had that did carry through through the Bram Stoker iteration of Dracula. Um, Slavic folklore, they only come out at night. And I found this out. Apparently, vampires only hunted their friends and family who were still living. So after a guy died, if he turned into a vampire, he would just come and kill his fucking friends, you know? Which is, I, which is rude. I, I'd be fucking pissed. Also, they didn't, Slavic folklore vampires don't bite on the neck. They bite on the chest above, like, the heart to get the maximum amount of blood out. So that's what they were believing back in the day, being like 17 people fucking died of vampire attacks. I don't know what's going on. But I found this out. So back then, they believed that blood uh, equals life. Again, not a whole lot of science going on. So people were like, all right, well, if a person loses a lot of blood, then they die. So blood is probably life, and then, uh, well, if you can, if you lose life, if if you eat blood, then you might gain life, and that was the idea behind like vampires sucking blood out of people. So lose blood, you die. Well, and if you gain blood, you got to get some life. I found that out. I was like, dude, I I mean, it's easy to criticize that now, but if I was back in the day, and then there was like vampire attacks, and nobody knows what the fuck's going on, people just dying, turning pale, I would I would I probably believe that. That makes sense to me. I'd be like, yeah, dude, eating blood. I got you. All right, so that's the situation they were dealing with back in the day in Slavic folklore. So what do they do to try to solve this problem? They started cutting off a lot of heads and blasting stakes through corpses. That was their move here. Uh, So I couldn't find any encounters where, like, they caught a guy being a vampire and then they cut his head off. Or they caught a vampire attack, somebody, but, and then I think what, and I actually, there is a scientific explanation we'll get to in a second, but, so the way that they dealt with it was that like, all right, if a guy died and we think there's vampires going on and his friends and family are turning pale and they're starting to cough up blood and then they're dying because they're secretly getting visited by a vampire in the middle of the night, how they decided to deal with that was dig up the corpse And then any variation of, like, sometimes they would just put a bunch of daggers in it to pin it to the earth because the idea was that, well, if this guy's getting up, that's why he's not decomposing. So we got to pin him to the earth with using daggers and swords, and then once he's in contact with the earth, he'd start to decompose. 
Also, again, cutting off their head, that was a crowd favorite. They would dig up the body, cut that head off, and then they would either put it on their chest or sometimes they would turn it around with the idea being that if the vampire got up out of the grave, he, like, would bump into stuff and, like, wouldn't be able to see. I didn't really understand that one. If you're going to cut his head off, why not put it on the chest? But sometimes they would just cut his head off and turn it around and then seal the grave back up and be like, well, he's going to be clumsy if he gets up, so we're good. So the evidence... When these people would go out and try to try to stop the vampires by digging up dead bodies and cutting their heads off and stuff, the evidence that they cited that they were like, oh shit, this guy definitely is a vampire, good thing we dug him up, there would be blood coming from the mouth, the skin looked fresh at some parts, the body was not stiff because it, it was not rigor mortis anymore, so they were like, this guy's up and moving around, I fucking knew it. And then also when they would stake him, when they would go and put that stake through their chest or whatever, a bunch of blood would come out. And then also the corpse would sometimes make a noise like, a, uh, and then people were like, fucking knew he was alive. Did you hear that shit, dude? Good thing we stuck him. Let's, let's put this fucking dirt back in. That was their evidence. And this gave rise to a group of people that were actual vampire hunters. Now when I learned about this, the vampire hunters back in the day, they weren't like Bigfoot hunters today where it's like kind of like dudes who are like, I don't really know what you guys are into. Like the vampire hunters back then were like the leading intellectuals of the day. They were like men of science. People believed they were brave and they were out there digging and lobbing off heads is what they were doing. And again, I don't, I don't think they ever did this to anybody who's alive. They said alcoholics, but I think it was mostly, uh, like, if you died a strange death, people might be like, oh, that guy might be a vampire. And then if your friends and family started dying, then they would dig your body up and cut your head off and put a put a sword in you and stake you into the ground. But I, I don't know if they ever cut off a dude in a blackout's head if he was just blacked out. And they were like, this guy's a vampire and cut his head off when he was hungover. I don't know if they did that or not. But that was what they were dealing with, and that's how they understood their world. So, great. How does science explain this all? All right. The main guilty parties for the confusion of what they believe versus what science thinks was happening back then is, one, people not knowing shit about dead bodies, two, tuberculosis, and then three, some people would get buried alive sometimes. That would just happen. Now, for the first one about people not knowing shit about dead bodies, people knew about dead bodies back then, but only, like, above ground. Like, people would see dead bodies decompose above ground. There was, nobody was really watching what happens to a body if you bury it and then it starts to decompose. But that's why there was a miscommunication between, like, oh, if we dig up this corpse and it looks different. It's got blood from the mouth. It's not rigor mortis. It looks, the skin looks fresh. This dude's definitely a vampire. When it was more like, oh, people just don't know really what to look at if you bury a body and what that body turns into or could turn into in the next couple of days. But that miscommunication was enough for the vampire hunters back in the day to start cutting off heads and be like, we got evidence here. Also, I thought this was really cool that there's a theory that tuberculosis was to blame for most of this. And that's because, mainly because the the friends and family of the recently dead, the guy that they thought was a vampire, the friends and family would start dropping dead, but not right away. They would... It would be like a series of days where they would get weaker and weaker. They'd grow pale. They'd have congestion in the lungs. They, And then they'd maybe start coughing up blood, and then they'd die again. But nobody ever sees a vampire come suck the blood out of them. So they just assume that it's happening in the middle of the night, when really science thinks that it might have just been tuberculosis. 
And then for the third one, uh, yeah, that's just a whoops. Some people did get buried alive sometimes to the extent that like there was a there's kind of a panic of like people are scared to get that I don't want to get buried alive. And then they would have contraptions coming out of graves sometimes of like a bell on a ring or a bell on like a string. So just in case you got buried alive by accident, you could ring that thing. I thought that was pretty creepy. That that was such a problem that like you had to make a solution of like, all right, we'll also put a bell with a line down there just in case I'm not dead. But the tuberculosis thing made a lot of sense to me. It's, I thought that was really interesting. And also, vampire hunters accidentally kind of got it right. Not by cutting off heads and staking people and stuff. That's not good. But after they would do that, then they would burn the bodies and like throw them in a river or something. And in doing that and burning the bodies that may or may not have had tuberculosis, it would actually help stop the spread of tuberculosis in a rural village. So even though the vampire hunters didn't know what the fuck they were doing... They were kind of doing something correct there, but I mean, everything else was kind of like uh, unnecessary, but it made people feel better. What are you going to do? I feel like we've blown through this, but I feel pretty good about that. That's, uh, that's, that's vampires, dude. That's vampires for chip. Oh, I do have an exotic at the end. All right. This doesn't have anything to do with any of the shit we just talked about, but we are going to cover Asian vampire real quick. We did Asian Bigfoot. We're just going to hit on Asian vampire real quick. This dude uh, is called the Jiangxi, Jiangxi, and it wasn't just in China. Uh, they also claim that it's uh, Vietnam, Korea, Japan, and the basic ground rules of like bite it and you can give it to you, uh, undead, and you die. It goes after your friends and family. All the same Slavic folklore vampire rules carry over to the Jiangxi, but uh, a couple extra fun ones here. So, according to the Chinese va- vampire mythology here, the Jiangxi, their whole body was stiff. They don't, they don't ever move. They just stand up, and the only way they get around to attack you is hopping. That's their only move is that they can hop. And I, I couldn't find out if they use their knees or if it's just all calves. Is it little hops or is it big? I don't know because they said the whole body was stiff. So I don't know how much leeway you're going to give them. But if it was just little peg hops of your... Fu- of your calves. It's a pretty funny looking vampire. I also couldn't find out if you could knock them over. If they're that stiff, could you throw shit at them? I don't know. But uh, another thing, they had their arms out. This is different from Slavic folklore. The Zhangxi were vampires that could only hop around and their arms are 100% of the time out straight in front of them, 90 degrees, like traditional mummy or zombie arms. So hopping around, zombie arms out, watch out. Uh, and oh, the tactics to get away from a Jiangxi, if you ever see one, uh, you can hold your breath and it won't see you. It's like Velociraptor rules on that one. Or also you could throw a bunch of coins on the ground because then apparently the Jiangxi would have to stop and count those coins. So either have a bunch of nickels on you or hold your breath forever. Uh, if this thing's about to jump on you. With his arms wide open. I don't know. I thought that was a pretty fun vampire. It had nothing to do with anything, but I was like, that is a bizarre, like how, who lied in what order to make that thing where it's like, I was getting chased by this thing. It was a dead body. There were dead bodies on movies. Like, yeah, no, he was just hopping. He was a hopping dead body. Like there's a series of lies to make this that made me laugh. So I don't know. I wanted to cover Asian vampires. We did Asian Bigfoots. Why not? Well, the uh, the vampire has truly achieved immortality, if not in real life, then certainly in our deepest, most secret nightmare fantasies. 
that has been Oral Presentations, Episode 31, Vampires for Chip. Uh, thank you guys for listening, and uh, I hope you guys are all staying safe. I uh, appreciate you guys checking the show out, and on Wednesday, I'm, uh, we'll have Jonah Arc ready to go. So thanks so much, guys. I'll talk to you later. I'll see you.